Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I went back to my alma mater, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, to uh, talk for a little bit about the uh, 25th anniversary of Al Mohler, president there, that I uh, served with in a number of uh, capacities. And they told me, we want you to speak about the significance of President Moeller, for uh, 10 to 15 minutes. And I just said, well, that's impossible. And I actually uh, just said, I'm just not going to do that. And I told them, you can explain it away by just knowing that over the past nearly 25 years that Al Moeller and I have been working together, I've seen him deal with student protests at the beginning. I've seen him uh, be uh, attacked by an old lady with an umbrella uh, one time uh, in his in the foyer of his office. I've seen him uh, survive a flesh-eating bacteria one time in 1997. I've seen him survive um, pulmonary uh, blood clots that, that we, we thought would kill him. I've seen him survive an, an eye disorder that happened uh, one time that caused him to have to wear uh, sunglasses uh, while doing a debate on Calvinism. I've seen him um, survive a, a rabid bat attack. So uh, I came to the conclusion there is no way that I'm going to outlive him. If he were going to die at an early age, he would have died already. I'm quite confident that I will not be alive to give the eulogy at his funeral. So they could just take some of the time out of what I would have said then. But as I was doing that, I thought uh, it it might be uh, interesting uh, to share with some of you my assessment of his significance, both in my life and more generally on uh, American evangelicalism. And you may say, well, I'm not uh, sort of in the orbit uh, that would uh, that would really understand uh, seminary education. That, that's okay. I think you still could benefit from this conversation because every single one of us have mentors, whether they're good mentors or bad mentors. You have somebody who's who shaped you and and carried you along, and all of you are mentors again, good or bad, to other people. There are people watching you, even if you don't have any idea that they are. And so I think there may be some things that you could benefit from in this uh, conversation. Before I met Al Mohler, I remember right after he was elected, I was in a campus ministry at the University of Southern Mississippi, and people were uh, giving prayer requests. And one of them said, we need to pray for Southern Seminary because there's a, a young new president who's been elected and he's going to destroy the school. And so we, we just need to pray that he does not succeed in those plans. Well, I didn't know anything about 
him or, or, or Southern Seminary, but I was called on to pray. So I prayed that God would frustrate the plans of uh, Al Mohler. I just had no idea who, who he was or what he was doing. Thankfully, God did not answer that prayer because God did not frustrate uh, the plans of Al Mohler. And I first came to know who he was when I heard him speak at a Southern Baptist convention. He, he gave the convention sermon in 1995 on what mean these stones from Joshua. And it reminds me something of what someone uh, said I saw written several years ago about the former governor of my home state, William Winter, where he said that he was listening to Winter speak and he sounded like the people that he'd grown up with, uh, but he was actually saying something. And that was the case. You, you had somebody who was standing up and casting a vision for what it means to be theologically rooted, and it actually made sense. Not only did it make sense, but it took seriously the ability of his hearers to be able to follow an argument. It wasn't slogans. It wasn't rah-rah, uh, let's support the program. It was something else. And it was very much similar to the first address that uh, Dr. Moeller ever gave at Southern Seminary called Don't Just Do Something, Stand There, about the necessity of having uh, confessional convictions. That was important because when he was elected, that was the big controversy was how seriously faculty members should take the abstract of principles, which is the, the confession of faith for the school. And Dr. Moeller stood up and said, this is not just an artifact of the past. If we don't stand with conviction, if we don't have a theological identity, then we're going to have no identity at all. Now, those two addresses for me served as like a, like a rescue flare uh, into the air. And I think that was true for an entire generation of us. That's one of the reasons why so many of us ended up uh, converging on Louisville uh, right after he arrived. Many of them were back uh, at Southern for the 25th uh, anniversary, and it was a real kind of family uh, reunion that was there. Now, what he recognized was that in the controversy that was taking place in our wing of uh, evangelicalism, he knew what was going on. And he knew that the, the sort of the acids of modernity that, the, the, that was represented by the theological left, it couldn't provide a future. It was enfeebling the kind of supernaturalism that is necessary uh, for Christianity to go forward. But he also... Uh, recognized, and he, he mentioned in that don't just do something, stand there uh, speech, that you couldn't just replace one party with, with the other. He said there's a kind of obscurantist fundamentalism, he said at one point, that also cannot move Christianity forward and actually, in, in many ways, just speeds along uh, liberalism. So he, he knew that affirming the inerrancy of the Bible is important. That was the, the point of controversy at the time. But you wouldn't be able to actually conserve much of the gospel if you had simply an inerrant table of contents for the Bible with people who didn't know what the story of Scripture was and how to fit it together. It, it couldn't be, as he put it at a later time, simply a weekly 
recitation of John 3.16 and y'all behave yourselves. Uh, what we needed was a deep grounding in the truths of Scripture that, that could be articulated confessionally and lived out uh, congregationally. And what he said was that's going to require both doctrinal orthodoxy and academic uh, rigor. And he says we're going to have to be the people who, as he put it, don't have a motive of seeking false refuge in an antiquarian past absolved of all of its faults and blemishes, but to keep the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I have been with Al Mohler. I have served with him as his student, as his research assistant, as a faculty member, as dean, as provost, and now as fellow entity head. I wish that I had uh, an offering plate full of money for every time I've heard him say, uh, the faith once we're all delivered to the saints from Jude. It is a, it's a consuming sort of um, centering point for his entire uh, ministry. And so he recognized uh, from the very beginning that what was really at stake is not just about the inerrancy of the Bible, well, that's foundational, but also that you couldn't have the kind of uh, pragmatism that was going on uh, within his and my denomination at the time and now in many cases and in evangelicalism more more broadly. So he, he knew that that kind of market-driven evangelicalism couldn't conserve, uh, no matter how conservative it thought it was it couldn't conserve what it what it didn't have, and the the sort of uh, market driven mentality often applied to groups of of Christians who had nothing seemingly to do with one another. They're just marketing to different groups. So the the sort of phenomenon of red letter Christians, you know, the people who say, well, we we pay attention to the red letters, what Jesus says, but we don't we don't take as seriously. Uh, the Pauline epistles or Old Testament passages or so forth. That mentality shows up in all kinds of places, even with people who are warring factions with with each other. But uh, the people who would find the parts of the Bible to be ignored on the basis of who is paying the bills and finds those places of the Bible obnoxious. So he recognized that. And so he laid out an academic vision uh, where he said the seminary, the place that's training pastors, needs to have a priestly function, as he put it, which is to uh, raise up pastors and, and, and to equip uh, churches to carry out their mission, and also a prophetic function, which is to speak to the church and to remind the church of what the church is. So he knew that it doesn't matter how conservative you are, if you're theologically illiterate, you're going to end up with theological liberalism because if no one can articulate orthodoxy, orthodoxy dies. So uh, when he was speaking at the very beginning in a, a sort of evangelical mode that was trained to think in terms of just whirling programs and activities and denominational uh, sort of uh, we're, the, we're the best, we can do it, he cast a vision that had something very different, and then he spent the next uh, 25 years and counting uh, implementing it. And he did so in a way that took great courage 
to stand up and say to, to people who some of them were his own teachers to say, no, that's not the, that's not the direction that we're going to go, but also to speak uh, into a denomination that would have agreed with him theologically, but many of them would have preferred if he had just run with the herd, sort of boosting the program and having a, a kind of least common denominator approach of talking about what people were already talking about. But Moeller didn't do that. He built a faculty and he trained seminarians to confront secularization and deconstructionism and pluralism and and all of those things. But he also spoke to the people in the churches, and he took them seriously so that they would be able to handle substance instead of just uh, slogans. And so some people will say, well, oh, that's elitist. To, to talk about deep theology and to, and, and to talk about uh, these sorts of things. That, that's not at all uh, what it is. As a matter of fact, what Moeller was doing was combating what George W. Bush would call the soft bigotry of, of low expectations by coming in and recognizing that the faith, once we're all delivered to the saints, is handed to the church. And so the church ought to be able to articulate what orthodoxy is, what mission is. And then over uh, the next 25 years, he built that institution uh, at Southern Seminary. And what I find what I find the most fascinating to me personally is what he actually created there. I went, after I heard that, that sermon at the 1995 Southern Baptist Convention, my wife Maria and I went to Southern 1996 to apply for the PhD program, to talk to faculty, to, to move around. And we, we talked to a, a faculty member there who said, you know, you can apply to a PhD program here, but uh, by the time you graduate, the school probably won't even be accredited. And uh, I went and met with, just happened to be walking by the president's office, stopped in. He agreed to meet with us. He sat down and cast the vision of what he wanted to do with the school. And I remember thinking, well, I don't care if this degree is accredited or not. I want to study with this guy. And what happened was uh, I said to him, well, um, I understand that accreditation is kind of perilous and precarious. And he said, what do you mean precarious? I said, well, you know, a faculty member said that might not be accredited in a few years. And I remember this look of uh, disguised irritation as he said, I think things are further along maybe than even some of our own faculty members would recognize. Uh, and of course, uh, the school became academically the, the envy of the conservative evangelical world, a, a faculty unbelievable. But more than that, he created a home for a group of us. And it you know, a lot of us were wondering, would following Jesus entail putting our our minds or our souls into a kind of a blind trust? And he, he cast a counter vision to that. And, you know, he would have had an easier time in those first few years just to be kind of a hail fellow well-met fundraiser or a sort of an old boys club denominational politician and and he would have met some people's expectations better, but he knew that there needed to be an intellectual at the helm who understood the issues and who could hold a faculty accountable and recruit a faculty because he knew all of their disciplines, at least as well as they did. And so 
he he built this institution where there was really a feeling of being, as our, our seminary hymn would put it, soldiers of Christ and in truth or right at the same time. And, you know, when I think about that, though, I, I don't think so much about truth first when I think about his legacy, but love. And that's that might be an unusual thing to say because I think when when most people who think of Al Mohler think of him, they think in terms of intellect or uh, academics or sort of worldview analysis and, and that sort of thing. But that's not the first thing that comes to mind. Now, there have been so many times when there have been this, there have been moments of denominational crisis or institutional crisis or, 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 or something like that. And I've punched the person next to me and said, watch this, because this is the Al Mohler that inspired us to leave our hometowns, to study with him or to teach with him or to, to lead with him. And it was, it was remarkable to see because uh, I used to joke when I was his provost and dean there at Southern, I would say the secret to the fact that we're able to work together so well is because we don't ever panic at the same time. And I know he would probably chafe at that because he often says leaders don't panic. And well, depending on how you define panic, there are plenty of times when both of us panicked. But his secret was that he only panicked over tiny things. So he might panic over the fact that the vending machine uh, guy had put uh, Hooters brand chips uh, in the the student center vending machine. And, And he went down with pockets full of change to get rid of every single one of them. Uh, So he might panic about something like that, but he would never, when it came to something that was genuinely a problem or genuinely a crisis, he actually sort of moved into this this very calm, tranquil uh, sort of, of mode. But as powerful as those moments are, what's most important for me is that he didn't just build a citadel. He built a a home. And I, I can tell you a couple of the clearest sort of uh, examples of that. One of them would be when he wrecked a, an academic personnel trustee committee meeting uh, that I had planned very well. And I was shocked because he is such a stickler for academic decorum. We would have uh, cabinet meetings at Southern where uh, you know, he, he would respond to something. We can't do that. That's a violation of the trustee policy of spring meeting of 1927 and, and rattle off those sorts of things. But in that meeting, we were just seconds before the, the roll call of the trustees there. And he leaned over to me and said, I think we need to elect uh, Chip Stam to uh, tenured faculty today. Now, Chip Stam was a uh, professor of, of music and, and worship, and at that time he was terminally ill. And I said, we can't do it. Chip didn't have a terminal degree. Chip uh, hasn't been through all the requisite faculty uh, committees, and, and we have to have time to move through this policy. I said, the, the, policy, the, the policy says we can't do this. And he says, well, then we'll change the policy. And I said, but he hasn't been interviewed. I mean, he'd been interviewed by us, but he hadn't gone through the, the formal interview uh, process. And Al said, well, do we have a phone? 
uh, and he got him on the phone. And, and we, the trustees, changed the policy for Chip in order to elect him to the faculty. The reason for that was because Moeller knew that Stam would probably never be in a classroom again. But he wanted the last word that he heard from Southern Seminary to be not how well-oiled our academic personnel policies are, but he wanted that last word to be, we love you and we want you here for life, no matter how long of that life you have to live. And that's what happened. And I can think of being in opening convocation uh, one time. Uh, Opening convocation was the beginning of the semester where we would line up. Dr. Moeller would be on one side, I would be on the other. We would have two lines of faculty behind us, and we would all be in our academic uh, regalia, and we would march in from the back doors into Alumni Chapel, heading up to the front. And um, I, I remember this day so clearly because parts of it were the same as they always were. We, we would have stopped at the back of the chapel, and Al would have said to me, quoting again from our seminary hymn, we, we meet to part, but part to meet, and we would meet uh, at the front. But that day, um, there was a, a student that we had who was sitting, you know, maybe the second or third row on the left side, and we knew that he had received news that he was terminally ill. The doctors had said there's, there's nothing that they could do. We'd prayed for him. The seminary community had been caring for him, and he was going to continue his classes. He wanted to, to finish that degree if he could. But we were up on the platform, and we were singing, I think, that day, Keith and Kristen Geddes in Christ Alone. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye something I don't even think anybody else probably saw. When we came to the line of that hymn, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, that, that part of the, the hymn. Al locked eyes with that dying young man. He pointed to him and he mouthed the words, that's you. And it was just a, it was just a powerful moment for me. And it was a uh, sort of a summing up moment because Al Mohler built a seminary that gave that young man and thousands of others of us a top rate education, knowing the Bible and theology from scholars like Tom Schreiner and Herschel York and Bruce Ware and Greg Wills and on and on and on. But in that moment, he was theologically educating that student and really me, unbeknownst to him, without even an audible word. And it it so fit with everything else that he was doing because he told the truth that this was no sloganeering. This this was no rah-rah. Uh, you're going to be okay. He told the truth, you're going to die. And he did shortly thereafter. But he was also there to point to that young man and to say, don't think about your blood count levels. Don't think about your Hebrew quiz this afternoon. Think about the point of the whole project. Be serious about the gospel. Be serious about the joy that this good news we've pinned our lives on. It's, It's actually true. I mean, so what he was saying to that young man was awfully close to uh, don't just do something, stand there. And that, that really sums up the whole 25-year project from when that 33-year-old uh, president came into office. He worked to give those called by God the confidence to stand, no matter where we were all over the world, and to sing the gospel with joy 
to point to the precipice of death and to say, that's you. That's me. Don't be afraid. Remember the gospel. Believe the Bible. We meet to part, but part to meet. And in that way, he ended up being something far more than just another academic uh, CEO. Uh, Southern Seminary has a list of presidents that are renowned. James P. Boyce, and E.Y. Mullins, and John Broaddus, and Duke McCall. I actually think that Al Mohler is her greatest uh, president because he wasn't just another academic uh, CEO. He really was a, uh, even as we have an alma mater, a, a mother, uh, we had in him an alma pater. We had a, we had a father uh, when, uh, and he was that to all of us who needed him even before he knew who we were. And that's one of the reasons why if I were on the trustee board there at Southern, I, I would really want to, to name that chapel after him. It's called Alumni Chapel right now. Um, but so many of the, the defining the vision moments that have happened over the past 25 years all happened there. And also, it, it fits because he sums up the alumni. Uh, he was a son of Southern Seminary. He loved it, loved it. I mean, to the point that he wouldn't want to uh, you know, change the hours of the library because of he, he knew what it was like to, as a student, have been uh, in that library until 11 o'clock at night uh, when, it, when it closed down. He didn't want it to close any earlier. But also, he represents all of us who came to the school and the people who will come to the school who came there because he preserved it uh, in her time of, of, uh, of greatest crisis. And so when I think about 25 uh, years of Al Mohler at Southern Seminary, I give thanks to God. And I saw it even just as we were gathered there for that 25th anniversary because there's a connection that isn't just sort of be true to your school loyalty, but something richer and, and deeper to that. And that really is because a young man came into office, and he stood up and he told uh, the world what it is that he sought to do, and then he did it. Uh, he He didn't just do something, although he did, but more importantly, he stood there. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signpost. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.